you to do something for me? Yeah. Could you please explain the television show Happy Days? Sure. What I did not realize before watching these films was that Happy Days was on after this movie? And arguably the movie in question inspired it? Question mark? Here's a little bit of trivia. I'm glad you asked because I've been reading Ron Howard, uh, his autobiography. I guess it's an autobiography. He wrote it with Clint Howard, his brother. It's called The Boys. And the cool thing about it is that it's about their father, Rance Howard, Ron and Clint. And they all kind of take, and Rance died, but they all kind of take turns at it. Because Rance, you would know him if you saw him. Because he also is an actor. Uh, so it's just a, a cool biography about a family that's been in Hollywood since the late 50s. So I could also see Ron Howard someday probably writing his own autobiography by himself more in depth because this kind of skips over things that I would find more interesting. Like I wanted to hear a little bit more about his film career. He talks just a lot about his father and working on the Andy Griffith show and what Clint was doing at the same time. Whatever. Anyway, an insight about or a little tidbit that I didn't know is that after the Andy Griffith show ended in like 68, you know, Ron's only like 15 or 16 now he's like something like that you know 14 15 and he, you know he was on like a top 10 show almost number one pretty much its whole run but then like right when the andy griffith show ended he was getting like hardly any any work so he was totally living the life of like oh shit this is what happens to a child actor after their big break is over so like for a solid four years he was hardly getting anything so he was kind of taking anything as well but it was he also wanted to be a director even at that age so that's kind of what he was going toward and he was applying to USC after he graduated high school, uh, University of Southern Car- uh, California, which is where everyone went. Lucas went there. Where Spielberg went yeah. there. Yeah. There was this pilot that Gary Marshall, the producer, who wasn't that famous at that time, was making for ABC. But it starred this kid named Richie Cunningham. And it was about him growing up in the 50s. This is like 1971. And Ron got the role. So they shot this pilot. ABC sees it and says, no, it's crap. We don't want it. They shelve it. And then all of a sudden he gets this script like a year later for this movie called American Graffiti from George Lucas. And wouldn't you know it, the thing is a freaking massive hit. So all of the networks are like, oh, shit, we got to make a show about the 1950s uh, stat. Like, what do we do? And that's when Gary Marshall was like, hey, ABC, hi. Do you remember that pilot we shot uh, about Richie Cunningham? And it happens to star one of the stars of American Graffiti. So it actually existed before American Graffiti, but American Graffiti was the thing that reminded them like, oh, this will be good. And then they ended up making it into Happy Days. That is an interesting tidbit. Yes. Uh, And it was a huge, massive success, you know, throughout the 70s and even into the 80s. I think the show went on for like eight or nine years. Went till 84. It went for a total of 10 years. Oh, there you go. I don't think I've ever seen an episode, but I'm pretty sure you had. It's all very relevant to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone to Aaron and Justin talk sequels, movies that came after another movie that continue (laughs) in some way the story of that original movie. And today... I, I'm Justin, by the way. Yeah, I'm Aaron. Nobody cares. Who Today we are talking about the 1979 classic More American Graffiti, which I had <laughs> never seen before this morning. You watched it this morning? Uh, this morning, because I woke mind. up, saw your text, and was like, oh yeah. Oh, and Jesus so I watched Christ. it this morning. I watched American Graffiti yesterday. Well, I watched the sequel yesterday, so it's not like it's crazy that you watched it this morning, but it is still kind of funny to me. Sequel to the 1973 smash hit American Graffiti. This movie is directed by a little-known director named George Lucas. He only made these two movies, and unfortunately in 1976 was 
killed in a uh, drunk driving accident. <laughs> There's always been a lot of question about what he had a lot of scripts in development, like unnamed sci-fi project, and then another one called Radioland Murders. And there was always a lot of hope that he would have, he showed such potential with this. A lot of people were upset when they were making the sequel in 79, just because it really wasn't what Lucas wanted and they wanted to honor his memory. But let's talk about this guy a little bit, this Lucas guy. He makes a movie about robots, which I think it was autobiographical. Biographical? Mm -hmm. THX 11378, something like that. I would just say 1138, and then I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. It is THX 1138. Are you drinking urine? Is that what you do in the morning? (laughs) I am drinking a complete, like, this is like 25 ounces of my urine. (laughs) I hear that's what killed Lucas, actually. He was drinking that he while was the drink, he was driving. The drunk driver. Yeah. He spilled it on himself. He swerved. And then his head was cut off by a light pole. Good it's lord. Terrible. Yeah. Did you see THX 1138? I have seen it, yes. Uh, you remember we were talking, I think in the last one maybe, we might have been talking about Dune because I was like, boring, sleepy movie. Yep. And you were like, that's hard sci-fi. And that's kind of what yeah. THX 1138 reminds me of. It's a little hard sci-fi. If you re- if you had read sci-fi authors back when you were growing up in the, in the 50s and 60s, then that's the kind of movie you would make as a student filmmaker. But it's good. Yeah, it's supposed to be good. I own it, and I've only, I'm only about 15 minutes into it. I wasn't in the mood then, and I just never came back. Well, I'll tell you this. It's, movie, it's like a it's like an artsy movie. I don't want to know the ending because I know it's a twist. Sure, but uh, Robert Duvall's in it, so there you go. You have an actual star, you know, someone that you want to see. But it ends like a like a film. Lucas had it in him that even though he made a experimental student film almost into like a big movie, he still knew he still right from the beginning had that idea that like oh, this is what audience would like. I want to give them an actual entertaining film. So it ends in that way. So Coppola produced THX 1138. These guys were already friends. And the word has always been that Coppola, he was pushing Lucas to make something that had box office appeal. Um, He really liked Lucas. He thought he had talent, but he was just making this stuff with robots that, that wasn't going to really engaged so he gets him to write i guarantee you he saw thx 1138 and was just like what is this shit <laughs> he produced it i know but i guarantee you he thought it like he respected it yes and so he was like lucas can you do something commercial i bet you can i challenge you to do something commercial that have actually have audience appeal to it can you do it so they write this movie but the important part about american graffiti is that it wasn't written solely by george lucas he had two humans there to help him with the human part of the interactions gloria katz and willard i'm gonna say huck i want to say gloria katz i know i don't know willard very well do you know willard and then there's somebody else though right somebody else came in and kind of like cleaned it up a little oh very short career i'm one willard real quick he was always in lucas's camp um he wrote the devil's eight never heard of it messiah of evil which he also directed Hmm. and then he wrote american graffiti something called lucky lady something called french postcards 
and then boom he's the son of a bitch that helped write temple of doom oh yeah with her yeah i'm sure with gloria best defense he wrote and directed and then he wrote and directed howard the duck yes right right. another lucas production and then obviously he wrote radio land murders because he was that movie was written in the 70s now did radio land murders ever get made that's one thing i was never familiar with yeah in 94 i i know that movie i've just never seen it it sounds like a woody allen film like back in the early 90s when he was making those kind of movies broadway danny rose we have to have an important conversation about radio land murders that i don't know if you picked that up in the reading but radio land murders appears to star the parents of richard dreyfus from american graffiti they have the same names yeah so it's like his parents that we never well we see them once yeah they say goodbye at the airport it's like those two had a wacky adventure in the 30s and that's kind of fun that is kind of fun anyway american graffiti comes out mild success you're always so sarcastic about things uh, yeah you know, mild success movie. he's dead uh, yeah, like any lucas ever heard of him uh, you know all right all right fine <laughs> how much did this movie remind you of another movie that we covered the last picture show not too much but it was definitely if you're going to talk about new hollywood you could probably include those two movies in this as well I mean, not even that, just we're talking two movies from two very different directors Mm. coming out around the same time that talk about kids at that turning point in their lives where they have to switch over from kids to adults and trying to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah, I see it story-wise, it kind of connects, but knowing the history about them, like Last Picture Show was Bogdanovich, it was a book, and Bogdanovich, everybody thought, was the last person that should make it because he was from like a city, he had no idea what it was like to grow up in a small Texas town. Whereas Lucas in American Graffiti is literally a story about his days as a young man, so it came from like a personal... Yeah. Thing. So I guess that's why I never the, I don't connect them the too origins much. are different. Yes. Right. But sure. Um, I'm with but, you in in the idea behind them. I got the same feeling in my gut when I was watching these two. Did this movie trigger any memories of our teenage years for you? Uh I think all movies like this trigger a little bit, but it's mostly like I wish we would have done that. I wish we would have done more of this. Oh, that would have been fun. But I think that's why these movies connect with people, because everybody has those thoughts. Like, oh, man, what if we were, like, into cars? Wouldn't that have been cool? We could have, like, cruised and shit? Like, that would have been way better than what we were doing. <laughs> I really connected with Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, a little bit of His that. His character, Kurt. I could see, yes, I could see you as him, now that you say it, because you, you had a little bit of Kurt going on. You were always after this dream girl. Uh, after seeing this movie, I actually set that up to that scenario in real life and because of a hot girl that I saw driving by in a white car. Mm-hmm. And I called her that same girl. Yeah. But I, so I had forgotten, because I haven't watched this movie in years, that this might have had more impact in my teenage years than I'd realized. Yeah. So we have four friends, four distinct stories that are interlinking. And they talk about how Lucas originally because lucas is a robot and he wanted to follow a very strict a b c d storytelling rule that the sequel picks up in an embarrassing way um and just kind of switch between these characters and that got lost in the editing process and the product is much better it's just a nicely woven i'm locking my fingers together yeah a nicely woven together story about one night 
it's basically the last day of childhood for these four people, their adventures. I mean, when I, when everything's firing on all cylinders as far as making a movie goes, once he shot everything, he realized, oh, it works as this way. And he had Verna Fields, who was like an old-fashioned editor, but she had worked in the business for so long and was very proven. And, and she went on to, I think she made like Jaws, or she edited Jaws and a couple other things into the 70s. So she only did the first pass of the editing. Marcia okay, well, still, I it. still think she was, like, instrumental in being, like, yes. this is how, you shot so much good stuff, but this is how it should flow. And he was like, yeah, you're right. That's kind of how what I was reading. And in Ron Howard's book, he talks about George really wasn't directing much either. He just would shoot and shoot and shoot, and he was up for improv. He just wanted to get them to be real, and he just wanted them to, like, become friends, make sure you guys know each other, and come up with something fun. And everybody working on the movie, apparently Harrison Ford, Richard Dreyfuss, were all just like, I don't know about this thing. It just seems like a bunch of nonsense. Uh, it all comes together in editing, and I think that's um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but he really came up with something classic. Yeah, this this is... It's perfect. Because it all flows, right? I mean, even though you have those four distinct stories, uh, you're never lost. And everything is just like, you're like on this nice little wave. And you're like, oh, let's catch up with him again. And you never feel like, oh, we haven't heard from them in a while. I forgot about them. Like, it's just, it's all nicely interwoven. It's kind of textbook storytelling, but also not. It's crazy how good this movie is. When Lucas was writing this, he said that he wrote each scene to a specific song. I'm not a music person. The music in this was great, obviously. But how in the hell have they been able to keep all of these songs in this movie for 100 years? Yeah, I don't know. How does that work? There just wasn't that many films that were doing it back then, getting rid of the traditional score and just using popular music. So it was kind of early on. and But now, like, see, everybody, I think, personally... I appreciate movies that did it early on because I don't like it anymore. I haven't liked it since Quentin Tarantino started doing it. I feel like, or Wes Anderson, I always talk about those two guys, um, but even Scorsese, you know, a lot of people like rely on popular music and I just think it's a cheat. It's a total cheat. I wrote a script. This is how I want you to feel during this scene. But me as the writer, I cannot, or me as the filmmaker, I can't really get across the emotion I want to on my own. So I'm going to take work by another artist that was not made in any way for this movie and use them as a crutch to let you feel what you should feel during this scene. That's why I don't like popular music uh, anymore in movies. And Tarantino and Wes Anderson, more than anybody I can think of, rely too heavily on other people's art in order to tell their own. And I just find that bizarre because they are held up like they are such geniuses and such auteurs. And I'm like, but you're letting half the work by fucking David Bowie is doing half the work here. Yeah, it is cheating, and it's cheating that I personally like, but I get why it's cheating. Yeah. This movie costs something like 700000 to make. It cost approximately just under 100000 to secure the music rights. Well, the deal was is that each company got twenty grand. Uh, it was like MCA and RCA. I don't know, whatever. whatever the RCA was were. the only one who didn't participate. Sure, that's why they didn't have any Elvis, is what I read. Right, Yeah. which I'm kind of glad. I don't know. Of course, like, he would have been an excellent addition, but you're not missing it because you don't think about it. No. I will give you this um, exception. When popular music is used, where it's actually included, on, like, it's on a radio station or the characters can hear it, then then I'm totally fine with that. 
I think it's 100% what they do in this movie. So they can actually interact with it. Then I'm okay with popular music. You've had that belief for a long time. And I remember in high school, Mr. Little made the same argument against me for using some song in some stupid oh, piece really? of crap movie that I made. Yeah. I remember watching a movie you made. No. Uh, you called no. it Nothing Man. Because after not, the Pro no. song, which you liked. <laughs> and and no, no, we're talking about this. Because we all had to... S- and I love Pearl Jam, obviously. But we all had to sit through, like, not, the song Nothing Man, I think it takes him at least, like, two minutes before he even sings the word Nothing Man. And that's where you wanted <laughs> the title to appear. So we all, it all, it was in black for, like, two minutes of just this song <laughs> before the title came up when he said it. And all I thought was, like, I could have helped him edit that so we could have, like, heard it maybe within the first 20 seconds. You kind of got to cut the song, but he, you didn't want to hear it from me. No, we can't talk about that stuff. Uh, Come on. We can talk so, four friends. <laughs> Richard Dreyfus as Kurt. Ron Howard as Steve. Paul Lamatt, who is my MVP. Lamatt. He's great. As this one. John Milner. And then Charles Martin Smith yep. as the Toad. Terry the Toad. That's just set up the plot. Kurt and Steve are leaving the next day to go to college uh, out east. They say back east, but they're not from that area, so I don't know why they say back east. They should have said out east. Maybe that's just how they say it in California. Like, uh, back east. I know, I think it is. How old do you think John is? See, John, to me, I always felt like, or I remembered him as being one of the four friends, but he was like the older dude that they all liked. But when you're watching the movie, I think it's supposed to be that he's around about the same age, which I find weird because he seems older. So I want to put Kurt and Steve at 18. Yes. Just graduated high school. Sure. I want to put John at 20. When you're that age, it is a small town and he is a the popular bad boy. Yeah, I want to say 20. And then obviously Terry the Toad is probably also 18. I would say maybe he's, like, uh, still in school. So maybe he's, like, 17. Maybe he's just going to be a senior. You don't think he'd graduated yet? I don't think so, because if you follow the final uh, the final card, where it, we'll get to this, but it, like, talks about their fate at the end, and then it, it picks up accurately in more American Graffiti. But I don't think he went into the service until a year or two later. Yeah. That's yeah. my guess. So I just feel like it works out. You got Steve and Kurt, 18... John's a little bit older. He's been around the block. He's just in that town. He's not going anywhere. Yeah. And then you got Terry, who's still the kid, and he's losing his friends. That's a good point. Yeah, because we don't have a conversation about where Terry's going. There's no dreaming for him. So, yeah. I just like where the characters are in life. They're not all just... It's it's just an easy way for character development immediately. Like, they all got their little bit of thing that are a little, little bit different going on. Last night in town, they want to have uh, just a fun night. The concept of cruising might be foreign to a lot of our listeners. Did you ever have your parents talk about cruising? No, and um, it was even a little out of date in 72 or 73 when the movie came out, too. Because that's what also Lucas was trying to get across, is that the world, to him, had changed so much in 10 years. See, my mom has told stories about when they were teenagers, all they would do is drive around. Everybody just drove around and drank beers in their car. Yeah. My mom always talked about going to the roller skate rink. That was her thing. 
her friends would all really? do the do the roller skating. So uh, that to me was the early seventies youth was roller skating, but to Lucas the early sixties was cruising. So I don't know, maybe it, it was different places, different times. But I could see yeah. how American Graffiti was probably a massive hit for your mother and and everyone around them, probably because it reminded them of that time. Yeah, she would have been the perfect age for that movie. I wonder if she saw it when she was a youngin. I'm huh. sure my mom did. My my dad's a little conservative. You know, he's like a farm boy, so I don't think he was into that hippy dippy shit hippy dippy (laughs) shit so i don't know kurt is more quote-unquote hippie beatnik intellectual what is the meaning of life kind of kid yeah he doesn't dress that way that's for sure it's like he kind of he kind of is wearing his school clothes is what it feels like to me and then he's just trying to party that night um but he's Uh, not sure if he wants to go he's the guy that doesn't know if he should leave town is what he's saying steve is the guy that's like no we are getting the fuck out of here. I have There's nothing for me in this town. I want to do something with my life. I put you in the Steve role. I was a little more Ron Howard, yeah. I, in the Kurt role, never thought you had to go anywhere to be successful. I was happy in the town that I grew up in, and I didn't think that you couldn't do not do anything by living there. And you were like, I want to get the fuck out. Sort of. I don't know. I was never that, really that guy that like, I got to You never heard me talk like that. I got to get out of this town. You got the hell was out of me? the town and that? you never came back. I did, but it was like little by little. It was just the opportunities presented themselves after a number of years. And I just took them. It wasn't more like I sought them out. Like, I got to get the fuck out of here. You sought those opportunities. Anyway, I put Steve on the football team. Do you think Steve's on the football team? Yeah, sure. And then we've got John the 20 year old he loves to drag race and he's just kind of wandering aimlessly through his life living in the small town you can tell that he's worried that he's gonna get old fade away and some young hot shot is gonna take that away from him and then the toad is their nerdy friend did we have a nerdy friend or was that if you don't know who your nerdy friend is that means it was you Collectively, we're probably we're probably the nerdy. Friends. Yeah, we were the nerdy friends. I would say he's more of a geek. I'd say he might. I don't know. Maybe even a dweeb. Small quabble. That's kind of split them up. up as it was intended and tell their separate stories and see if we can reconnect them at the end. And also, this isn't to give short sh- shift. Whatever. Yeah, short shift. The the females in the film because. Even at the end of the movie where you see the fate of the characters, you only see the male's fates. And I think that was like a little bit of a disparaging thing against the film is that at least one of the critics felt that it was like chauvinistic, which is a fancy word for sexist. But if you know the story, this is supposed to be Lucas. Like those are the four sides of Lucas and maybe his friends he knew. So that's why I think it's fair just to see where the men left off. But there's also women, but the women in the movie are connected to the men. That's just how the movie works. Like the women wouldn't have their story if it wasn't for what the men are going through. This is really the story of the four men and the people they interact with. And there's women in the movie and they're strong characters. And, you know, they are a little more well fleshed out than a lot of female characters in that time. I would say Lori is more fleshed out but as far as carol and debbie go they're linked to the men's story that's just what they're there for it's true so what are you gonna do it didn't bother me what are you gonna do um try to make up for it in the sequel for some fucking reason that's what you do Um, (laughs) did you not like the sequel is that what we're getting at oh we'll get there we have a starting point which is the diner they all meet up at the diner and then they all kind of split and go their own separate ways 
we have Kurt, who has the most distinct adventure in that he just wanders through town with different people that he doesn't know getting to an end point, and we don't know what that end point is. Is that kind of right? He, he just falls into the action, is what yeah, it seems Yeah, he's just like. kind of yeah. like, whatever, I'll go do this. Right. You know? He happens like, to run into, he sees a girl, a beautiful blonde, and a white T-bird, and he wants yes. to follow her. So that's like his main goal, is that she says, I love you, or mouths it to him. Uh, so he's just like, I gotta find this girl. That's what he does. And he ends up, you know, tripping into adventure throughout the night. Original script makes it clear that she is not real, that... Apparently, yeah, yeah, but that's that would have been stupid. I think there's no reason to make her some specter or some image in his brain. Well, I mean, they did that in National Lampoon's Vacation with the chick in the red car. Sure, exactly, but it's 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 dumb. It would have been dumb because there's no there's no uh, reason that she couldn't just have been having fun and fucking with him. I think that's perfectly fine. And so he spends the whole night chasing her. Good point. It's not just that he's wandering he's chasing her and he gets into a series of misadventures over that yes the first of which is he's with his ex-girlfriend this guy's kind of smooth because he immediately gets his ex-girlfriend into the back seat of the car mm-hmm. while his girlfriend was driving them around and they're making out because and they're then, kids man those emotions which is... those uh hormones you know what i mean yeah they can't help it this movie is a little horny and I oh, have yeah. to credit totally the other writers, horny. I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. Because I've never seen George Lucas horny again after this. No. You know what happens in later movies? All the goddamn fun is just sapped out of these later movies for him. That's what I think it is. It looks so <laughs> serious. Richard Dreyfus is kicked out of his ex-girlfriend's car because he pulls a joke on the driver. We catch him just watching TV on somebody's car where he gets picked on by street toughs, a street gang. Called what? The Pharaohs. And they kind of force him to come with them. Yeah, because it was their car. Who knows if it was even their car, but yes. They're fucking with him. And so they're fucking with him for a while. And they take him to an arcade where they are breaking into the machines to get gas money. And because Kurt is such a good boy and a hero to the community, the owners are like, Is that you, Kurt Henderson? And he's like, yeah, hey, hey. And he distracts the owners while these guys rob the machines. Right. So he's getting into their favor now. They're thinking about initiating him as a pharaoh. And what is his initiation, Aaron? I'm just being too That's a pretty great one where they take a cable and hook it to the back of a police car. Um, Like a known police officer that's always messing with the kids. And then they go blasting by. The car is like, oh, the cops are like, oh, we got to catch him. And once they take off the cable, I guess it was supposed to like pull their bumper off or something but he like hooked it to the rear axle and it just yanks the whole fucking axle off the car it was really awesome they did an episode on it for Mythbusters, which i never saw so i, I don't know if it. it could really happen i'm sure it can but it was pretty cool after that they part ways and he has one final idea to get a hold of the girl he's gonna find the famous radio pirate DJ Wolfman Jack and have him read on the air that this girl should call him. I think that was another thing that that Verna Fields, the editor, brought to the movie. I think it was her, wasn't it? She was the one that said, you should use Wolfman Jack to connect everything. Like, they should all be listening to him. She didn't bring him into the movie, but she used no, but him as a central editing like, focus. Exactly. Yes. Like, this stuff works. You should put all this stuff that you have here. Yeah. But he's actually in Kurt's story. Yeah, Kurt actually drives up 
to the radio station that it's rumored that is helps him do his radio DJ shit. And I take it this is how Wolfman Jack was to kids throughout the 60s because everybody thought a lot of people thought he was black Uh, a lot of people thought he was broadcasting from out of the country a lot of people thought that no he was like right in here in town like if you were a california kid and you knew wolfman jack so uh, i think coppola was the one that suggested to lucas you should bring wolfman jack into the movie and i think most of the recorded conversations with people were real that they took from his program yes exactly so he meets a guy in the radio booth that says he's not wolfman jack gives him the note he moves him with his story and throughout kurt's story his character change because when you're writing a script they have to grow in some way yes and so kurt starts not knowing if he wants to go and he's leaning towards staying home through his interactions over the course of the night these people make him realize that you have to go out and see the world before you can decide if you want to stay home. And also the unattainability of the blonde makes him feel, at least to me, it felt like that's this is how it should be. I shouldn't know her. Like, I shouldn't be able to obtain her. You know, I shouldn't stick around and just try to find this. I should. It should be something that's that I can't touch and I have to go away. I don't know. That's what it felt like to me. Like, it was almost a proud moment for him to say, like, I'm leaving anyways, even though I never got a chance to find out her name. So he leaves. He realizes that that guy is probably Wolfman Jack, and he goes and he parks at the diner, and he waits by the payphone that he gave Wolfman Jack the number to. And Wolfman reads his message over the air, and the next morning, or because they stay out all night, till it seems like 7 a.m., and he's sitting there sleeping in his car. The phone rings, but it's a bad connection. The blonde, she can't really... She just doesn't have a lot of info for him, and she's... She's playing coy about the whole thing. Says they can meet, but he's just like, I can't meet. I'm leaving. And it could have been anybody. So long, mystery woman. I love you. It was nice. So that's Kurt's story. Do you want to do Steve's story? I feel like Steve's story is pretty easy. Yeah. Steve and Lori are a couple in high school. And Steve immediately is, this is Ron Howard. He uh, wants to tell Lori, who's Cindy Williams, uh, both would go on to star in Happy Days. Um, She was Shirley. And then she, of course, became a breakout character on that show and got her own show with Laverne. So that's Laverne and Shirley. That's Cindy Williams. Do you know that? I didn't know that. That's cool. Um, Yeah. So they, uh, uh, Steve wants to see other people basically because he's all about leaving um, where Kurt's going back east. So then she takes it the wrong way immediately. I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. She takes it in a way. There's no wrong way, but she is surprised by this. And that's what I find to be weird where I think like it's probably since he's leaving this is the end of your relationship and you shouldn't be so surprised but she doesn't take it well obviously so then that's their night like they try to hang out together they go to this uh end of summer dance at their old high school they try to yeah they kind of they try to go to like uh, the secret makeout place and he wants to like you know get it on with her because it's their last night she's just too pissed he's always using that yeah but it doesn't go any farther than that anyways. He just says a lot of things that seem a little shitty, like, oh, you know, you want it, you know, but it doesn't really go any farther. She ends up jumping in a car because this is also part of cruising. It's just that guys would, I guess, would cruise the strip and they would say to girls, hey, you want to ride with me? And they would just jump in the car. So she ends up jumping in the car of this guy named Bob Felfa, who's got Felfa. a sweet little car. Um, I think it's a Chevy, maybe. I don't know. And he is a hotshot uh, street racer and he's looking for John Milner. Um, and that's pretty much where her story should end at the moment, and we should probably move on to John, and then we'll we'll connect back to them. Yeah, because we have to, yeah. So we should skip ahead to Terry 
the toad. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe John last, and then that leads into the final scene. Oh, yeah, because we will converge. But one more thing about Steve in that he starts to have doubts, whereas Kurt had doubts about staying, and he's more leaning at the end of the movie to maybe I should leave. Steve was all about leaving, but you can see his relationship with Lori is maybe more serious than he thought it was. So now he's like over the course of the movie kind of leaning toward maybe I should stay with her. And that, so then he knows he fucked up with Lori. So he's kind of actively trying to find her now. And we'll pause on him until the very end as well. So moving on to Terry. This one's really straightforward and it's got a lot of modern teenage movie hijinks, hijinks in it. Terry wants to get laid. And Terry's never felt cool. Steve gives Terry his car. Watch this for me until I come home for break. And Terry's never had a car. He's only has a moped. And so he's excited. He feels cool. And he starts driving around doing the cruising thing. But everybody knows him as a nerd and they're not giving or as a dweeb yeah as a geek and they're not giving him any credit or whatever but there is one girl that seems to be on his wavelength there's a super hot chick that he sees on the street named debbie and he turns the car Boss around oh, he so talks awesome. to her and for whatever reason debbie they put it in a way that suggests debbie gets around but that's not fair to debbie debbie can do whatever she wants especially in dallas Debbie can do whatever she wants and she's a kid the hormones so (laughs) they go cruising around and she wants booze and so we have this great scene of terry hanging out outside of a liquor store trying to get older adults to buy him beer or booze and he gets a homeless man Gives a homeless man some money, and he watches as the homeless man goes in, buys like six bottles of wine, and then sneaks out the back. Exactly. Uh, um, And then we have another classic Uh... where he gives another guy money, and he goes in, and then he proceeds to rob the place, throws him a bottle of liquor as he's running away. Yeah, he still got his liquor. And so they go, and they park at a necking place, and oh my god... They walk out of the car for privacy, and the car gets stolen, and they have to walk home. And the whole time, Debbie's just bitching. Debbie's just like, this is so lame. What are you going to do? And they walk back into town. No, here we have intersection where Steve has just broken up with Lori. Because they were also at the necking necking location, and she kicked him out of the car. Yep. And so the three of them walk back into town. How does Steve split off from them again? I believe somebody tells him that they saw Lori with Bob Felfa. No, not yet. And they're going to Paradise Lane or Paradise Cove, Paradise Road, whatever. No, there's a... Yeah, I think that's why they split up. And then Terry and Debbie find the car. Right. And it's not till... Steve has the car back where he goes after Debbie. Yes, he because they get the, the car back there. and they go to they go back to the diner and that's when Steve I don't know, whatever. They somehow well, Steve goes his own way again. Yeah. And so we have Terry and Debbie, they find the car and the guys that stole it are kicking the shit out of Terry when up rolls John in intersection again and he stops the fight they get the car back then it's at the diner and that's when steve rolls up uh, runs out because he hears that his girlfriend is with bob felfa yes I just like saying that name and then he jumps in his car and he heads out to where they're where bob's gonna drag race going to street race and terry's story kind of ends here he has had a 
adventure-filled night that has not gone well for him with Debbie. Much to his surprise, Debbie's like, I had a lot of fun with you tonight. Call me tomorrow. Yeah, this is one of the best nights of my life. Yeah. Kisses him and then leaves. And she gives him a little rundown of the day, like, well, we did this, and then this happened. It was actually pretty fun. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess I'm feeling pretty cool about it. All right. Yeah. And he has the first moment of real self-confidence. And then Terry leaves with John to go race a guy. So now we get to John's story. John's story. The most important story. I don't know. See, I would say he had the best character and the best story. But then you're like, well, Richard Dreyfuss is still pretty good, too. You know? So I don't know. <laughs> Richard That's Dreyfuss what makes the movie a classic yeah. is because there actually is a lot going on that you love. But John's uh, a great character and also has a very important story. At least his story is what connects everything at the very end, I would say. So John Milner is the, as you said, 20-year-old. He's a little older than everybody. Content just staying in town. He's the ultimate early 60s guy. T-shirt with the cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve. Kind of a greaser. Has a beautiful yellow Ford Deuce Coupe. You know, the Beach Boys song, Little Deuce Coupe. That's the that's the vehicle they're singing about. Uh, anyway, so he just cruises. And he's always looking for women to pick up. Uh, people want to race him, but he beats everybody. Yeah, he's unbeaten. Terry always, always calls him like he's the champ. Like nobody, He's unbeatable. Uh, nobody would, would even dare race you. But he hears there's this guy named Bob Velfa in his own souped-up car that wants to find John. And John's, like, kind of blowing him off. Like, yeah, whatever. You know, if he finds me, he finds me. Who cares? So John is cruising. He wants some girls. To, he wants a girl to join him. So they say, well, my sister would like to join you, but you can't really see her too well in the shadows. But she ends up running and jumping in John Carr, and her name is Carol, and she's, like, 12 years old. Yup. So he's always like, what the fuck? But the beauty about their relationship is... He doesn't know where she lives. He can't find her sister, so he's stuck with her, and he's not going to just leave her. Because John is a hard ass, and he plays it like he's a cool guy, but inside he has a heart of gold. Do we actually know her age? Because I peg her more at 15. She's 12, is what they is what I've read. She is 12, according to the Wikipedia. So that's played by... Um, Oh, uh, Debbie and Terry's story is played by Candy Clark, who actually won uh, an Academy Award for her role in this film. Did you know that? I did not realize. I just saw the other awards. And Candy Clark, uh, Candy Clark, I actually met at a old car show in Grand Rapids. They were outside a diner, and they had the music American Graffiti playing, and she was there signing or selling autographed uh, copies of American Graffiti for twenty-five bucks a pop. I did not buy one. I wish I had. Uh, I was there covering it for a news story. I got to talk to her for a little bit. She's very nice. Um, she's had a long career. She's mostly television on the 80s on up. But what I wanted to talk to her about, aside from American Graffiti, and if I had seen more American Graffiti at that time, I probably would want to talk to her about that as well, since she has such a bigger role in more American Graffiti. But she was in David Bowie's film, uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Classic, crazy, hard sci-fi, as you would say. Um, so I just talked to her about that. But she knew it. She was like, do you love American Graffiti? I was like, oh, I love American Graffiti. It's great. I'm like, but actually, I think my favorite film here is she's like, Bowie's film, right? <laughs> she's like, everybody your age tells me that that's their favorite movie or whatever. I'm like, oh, it's so great. So we talked about it. And that's funny. So she was cool. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so back to John's story. Uh, Carol is played by Mackenzie Phillips. And she's great in it, you know? Do you want to get into Mackenzie Phillips's history? I don't know if you want to learn. I about don't that. know if it's too gossipy just to say that because it's so salacious against societal norms. Salacious, yes. Oh my god, it's it's horrible. Is what it is. Mackenzie Phillips had a ten-year relationship of a sexual nature with her father, allegedly. 
According to her, yeah. Not allegedly. Allegedly. She wrote no. about it. Yeah, his that... ex-wife say it didn't happen, but oh. she's the only one that does. But her half-sisters his... back her up her story. But she did do a lot of defending of it, though. I don't. Yeah, I didn't read into it she... more than than that she was on the Oprah Winfrey show and talked about it. But she called it rape. She said the first time was rape for sure, but it became a weird Stockholm syndrome thing for her. Yes. She... And she sees how wrong it was. Well, see, here's the thing. John Phillips is her father, and he's, like, from the Mamas and the Papas, famously, like, yep. not just that band, but, like, knew everyone in the music industry, uh, was, like, a promoter, a producer, you know, everybody knew him, like, Dylan worked, like, everybody worked with him, you know? So it was just so horrible to, like, learn this fucking guy apparently slept with his daughter. It, it explains why she had such drug addictions in the 80s and 90s yes it's terrible that that happened and obviously that was something that happened against her will and even if she thought yeah the stepmom's retort to what she said about that relationship was i don't believe a lot of what she said considering she's had a needle in her arm for 35 years oh wow damn take that (laughs) So, like, it doesn't sound like she liked her stepmom or the stepmom liked her anyway. And you never know what happens behind closed doors. Sure. But knowing that side of the story, when I watch her as this young girl in American Graffiti, it hits me even harder because you want, you're like John, like, you want to protect this young girl. She is super famous for One Day at a Time when she was fired from One Day at a Time. She just was fired because she couldn't get her shit together because of drugs and stuff but she was also on like this uh nickelodeon show or, or disney channel show that a lot of kids when i was younger knew it's called so weird i think anyway but john is like that like he wants to protect this young girl and they end up becoming friends because she's just a young girl and she's almost like he's like a father figure to her throughout the movie and he doesn't want her there at first but then he like feels like a little bit of a fatherly thing toward her like oh i'll, I'll take her around I feel like we got off the tracks <laughs> with this side story. Yeah, we really got <laughs> off the tracks. Well, I mean, we got we got into John's story and that Mackenzie Phillips plays Carol and she's 12 and she doesn't think much of herself. You know, she calls herself ugly and that's why John's there to be like, no, you're better than you think. It's cute. It's cute. But between the race that he's supposed to go on with Felfa, I mean, what do they do? They get food they have a couple little more teenage hijinks as well like uh this car uh throws a water balloon and she gets hit in the face so they go up to the light and they jump out and they yes shaving cream all the windows and he lets the air out of the tires and stuff and you know one of those so they have their little teenage hijink thing too and then he ends up finding out where she lives finally and he gives her a kiss and gives her a kiss on the cheek and gives her the uh cap to his gear shift which is from a yes from a car guy that's a pretty special gift and she takes it like it's almost a ring and they're going steady and she's so happy and she runs away and really strong uh mandalorian obviously the mandalorian pulled from that yes uh, for sure <laughs> absolutely isn't that funny yes oh, i love Jesus seeing Christ. little easter eggs that i didn't yeah. realize until that's for sure i came back because the mandalorian <laughs> gives the his gear shift knob to the yep Grogu. Grogu. So eventually he drops him off and he knows that this guy wants to race him. He's already seen him once. They are together at a stoplight once and he pulls up next to him and they talk trash and he calls his 
little friend ugly and they start racing but john's not doing that in town he's smart he stops at the red light while that guy blows through the red light and you already know that he's not safe he does dangerous things well that's what he said he said yeah he's fast but he's stupid and so john gets his engine ready and then he pulls up to him and he tells him when and where then he goes out to race and everybody finds out that john is going to be racing it but by this time this guy felfa he's the guy that laurie is it laurie has been driving around and john even calls her out she's like what the hell are you doing in there and laurie's like mind your own business john the whole town is coming to watch him race and it's the morning now early morning but it's light now and steve is racing there to get laurie and john's gonna race felfa have we said who plays felfa no yeah, it's not. an unknown actor. Nobody would know him. Not, a carpenter. I hear it's his, his first movie. Yeah, was it? His or his first, first movie? like I think. Well, he he was a car. He was famously a carpenter at yes. that time. But Jesus. so he. Pre- but you know, I mean, how would it's like a carpenter just got called off of his carpentering job to go do a movie? He was probably like auditioning, and he was like an actor in small, tiny things. But this was like his first theatrical, I think, big deal movie. Yeah. But yeah, it is a young actor named uh, Harrison Ford. Yeah. This is where it all begins for him. Especially with his uh, relationship with Lucas begins here, obviously. So and this is what got him to be Han Solo and Indiana Jones. And yeah. Uh, so they race. They race over at Paradise. Is it Paradise Lane? Paradise Road? Uh, whatever Something. it is. Bob's tire blows. And uh, the car goes careening <sighs> over the over into the ditch and like flips over everyone's dead at least you would think so in that kind <laughs> yes. of accident but no they're fine Lori and bob luckily get the fuck out of the car before it explodes bob lost the race john won the race uh steve and Lori embrace and he's you know just happy she's alive and he tells her he's not going to go anywhere so from the beginning of the movie where he actually had to get out now he's the one that's staying and um is kurt at that race too no, he's he, no Kurt's not there. He stayed by the phone. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So he's the only one that doesn't join up at the end uh, for the race. But John won, and uh, but he walks away with Toad with Terry, and it's just like, nah, he was beating me before his tire blew. It was just luck. Like he was beating me, and Terry assures him, "What you say to the older guy that maybe isn't as cool as he used to be, but is just gonna stick around town anyways, and you want to make him feel better?" He said, "No, man." Nobody beats you. Nobody beats you. And then John has a great line where he's just like, yeah, you're right. We'll take them all on. But I think there was that change in him, too, where he knows he was beaten and he knows he needs to take the next step in his life. But I think he knows that he needs to be that guy to all of them. He's their image of a successful, cooler guy, even if it's not even if it's a fantasy. But Terry wants to believe it. And John knows that that's what he's here for. Yeah. And then we cut to the airport. Richard Dreyfuss is leaving. They are all there to say goodbye, including his parents. And the movie's over. The plane crashes. Kurt is blown from the plane. His body lands right in front of his parents. They scream, and it just cuts to black. And then the parents go, this was some sort of murder. We need to investigate. And then they get their sequel movie, Radio Land Murders, right? No, that's not how this goes at all. No, they leave, but the fun part, um, and I like to know that this was always in the script, is that uh, a little title card to let know where where all the the four main characters ended up. So John... The first thing you hear after, or the first thing you read after all that is that John was killed by a drunk driver at the end of 1964. Like, fuck. Yep, in December 64. Right. And then uh, Terry is was missing in action 
in Vietnam in July sixty five. Uh, Steve is just a insurance sale uh, insurance agent or whatever. Uh, clearly, you believe that he and Lori would end up together, get married, have kids. That's where it was going. Yeah. And then um, Kurt becomes a writer uh, living a writer in Canada. Is what he is in the movie Stand by Me. That's Kurt from American Graffiti, right? Wow. Stand by Me. I don't remember. Come on, Stand by Me with the four friends who go and look for the dead body, right? The Stephen King movie. Oh, yeah, he was the narrator, wasn't he? He's the narrator. He's the older, I think, Will Wheaton character, right? I don't remember. I believe so. I believe he grows up to be that character, and he's writing this story about his friends when he was young. No, the chubby one was... Um, what's his name from Sliders, but... Well, that was the kid version. Yeah, but I believe he's the Will Wheaton character. Oh. But I could be wrong. Anyway, but he's a writer, and uh, I just like to think that that's Kurt from Stand By Me, and that's him writing about the four friends he had before Steve, (laughs) Terry, and John, I guess. (laughs) Or maybe that is Steve, Terry, and John. There's four friends in Magravy. There's four friends in Stand By Me. He's a writer. He's older. It's the 80s. one of the friends black in Stand By Me? No. No? No. That's me it's just thinking River of Stranger Phoenix, Things. <laughs> Will Wheaton. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jerry O'Connell. Who's the other one? Oh, was I there four? Remember. Was there just three? I think it was four. Pretty sure there's four. The chubby one was Jerry O'Connell. Yeah. And then the cool one, the badass kid who whose father hated him or whatever was was River Phoenix. And then the Will Wheaton character, his, his brother, John Cusack, died. And the parents never gave Will Wheaton any sort of attention after the fact that their favorite son died. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think it's time for an ad break before yeah. we move on to our sequel. Everybody stay with us and listen to this sponsor. <laughs> this isn't going to be in it. <laughs> uh, I figured that was a nice way to pause because I have Do to you have like a sponsor? crazy. No, but you should we make need, up we one. Need, we need to get another ad. Welcome back from our break. You know, that was our best sponsor yet. I think so. I'm going to also purchase that product and or service. Or travel to that place. Um, yeah. Big hit. One of the biggest hits of all time. I think it's still in the top 50 of highest grossing movies. And when it came out, it was the biggest return on investment ever in the uh, movie industry. Yeah. So original run made something like 50 million. They re-released it in 1978 and it made another like 60 million. But they only spent under a million on making it. So yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Huge movie. You know what it also did? It um, revitalized the Beach Boys. Uh, Like their music was in it. And famously, they use uh, also long on the end credits they were like the number one band again rolling stone named them like band of the year in 1974 anyway i just thought that was a nice little aside originally universal wasn't going to put this movie out coppola used his influence and offered to buy the movie from the studio for what they paid and put it out himself that was turned down something came out between 71 and 73 oh the godfather oh well, anyway, some these guys developed a lot of cachet pretty quickly, and they got this movie to come out. And it continues to be one of Coppola's greatest regrets that he didn't produce this movie on his own because... Well, he didn't finance it on his own. Yes, because he would have made so much money in today dollars. He believed it to be at least $30 million is what he would have made if he had funded it himself. Yeah, this movie made over $100 million in the 70s. In today dollars, that's probably $25 billion. <laughs> 
Is that how inflation works? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, but also, it um, it made Lucas an, a millionaire yes. overnight, basically. From this, Lucas was able to establish different companies that would go on to make a lot of huge advances in filmmaking. The way we know movies nowadays, I don't think would exist without what Lucas did in the 70s. Because and, and a lot of people think it was Star Wars that started everything off, but it was really American Graffiti, which started Skywalker Sound, Industrial Light and Magic. At least, like, it wasn't all in the 70s and it didn't all become what it we know it as today but it's really what made him a businessman in the mm-hmm. movie industry um, and then yeah. star wars obviously kicked everything into high gear so the studio wants to make a sequel they get everybody back except for richard dreyfus who at the time is one of the biggest stars in the world yeah but see that's what's funny to me is that one of the actors is also the biggest star in the world because of a little movie called star wars uh but also ron howard and cindy williams were also i mean they were tv stars but they were huge tv stars at that time because of happy days and laverne and shirley So I feel like they would have been expensive as well. I think Dreyfus just didn't want to do it. Yeah, they get this guy, Bill Norton, who we all know from his super famous work, Three for the Road. I don't know. Lucas knew him. And he wasn't his first choice, but he seemed to be happy with the choice that was thrust upon him. I don't know. He wanted Zemeckis to do it. They still gave Lucas a like a postmortem executive producer credit. I think he actually worked on it, is what it says. Like he actually was he wasn't producer, but he was more than just in name. Like he did a little bit on it. I know exactly what he did. He showed up on set and he would whisper shit to Bill Norton, like That's Hey possible. Bill Go- hey, ghost Bill. directing. You know, when I made American Graffiti, I was going to use a very strict A, B, C, D film structure that might work really good with this movie. I was even (laughs) going to experiment with different aspect ratios and filming styles to stylize each of the different story elements. And I think that could go really well here, Bill. And then Bill was like, yeah, sure. That story just ended. (laughs) It was building to something and and you dropped it. Uh, American Graffiti was such a huge success, Lucas wanted to make a sequel because he was just like, well, that's what you do. But Coppola was like, ah, sequels don't do well right now. Don't worry about it. So then he goes on to do other stuff. And then once Star Wars was a hit, then the the studio was like, well, we want a sequel to American Graffiti. And at that time, Lucas is like, well, I'm too big a deal now. I can't make a sequel anymore. I got this going on. This Indiana Jones thing is going to happen with Spielberg. I'm too busy, you know, so. I'm too busy. I think he had more involvement than you want to believe, but it wasn't his movie anymore. No, he didn't he didn't write the script. Right. But they call it More American Graffiti and they wanted to further the stories of everybody. And this is what I was most happiest to learn about this movie because I was afraid that in order to make this movie that they would have to undo what the end credits said in the first movie. But they did find a way and I got to tell you, it didn't bother me. It was a little bit to get used to when I first started watching it. But it grabbed me, and I got into it, and the way they told the story over four consecutive New Year's Eves worked for me. And I think it was nice that they didn't have to change what was canon in the first movie. So they re-released American Graffiti in 1978, and I was like, is this the only movie that hasn't been George lucas Which means George Lucas went back, changed something, and made the story quote-unquote better. 
And in fact, he did Lucas it. Did he? What did he Lucas? They put back the cuts that the studio the made studio him cut. requested out. Yeah. Yep. So this is the version that everybody's seen since then. But in addition, at the end, they changed the card for Toad, saying that he went missing in action in December of '65 instead of July '65. Right. In but those original. are small quibbles. He still. This isn't like it. he never liked. The fact that John Milner was driving a yellow uh, Deuce Coupe, so he changed it to green or some shit like that. You know, like he didn't do or uh, he wanted the city to look more alive. So he added bigger buildings or something like he didn't do any of that George Lucas thing. I know, but he he did what all kinds of filmmakers did when they got a chance to release their movie and make minor little changes. And they made the minor change to support the story structure of the sequel. Sure, but that's fine. That doesn't bother me. Now, if Lucas had gone back in the 90s and did something to American Graffiti, that would bother me. Like he (laughs) did with Star Wars and THX 1138. American Graffiti is his most perfect movie he's ever made. And it doesn't need any changing. And I think that is a testament to how good that movie is. Because Star Wars wasn't that perfect, even though it was a hit. Oh, God. A lot of everybody's favorite. And it had some problems. Yeah. I'm not saying he fixed those problems, but it had problems and he wanted to fix them. And he made more problems, I feel like, when I watch Star Wars. I'm like, why did you put that shit in there? The whole yeah. Jabba thing. What the fuck? <laughs> it looked horrible. Yeah. It was bad. What else? You know what? We can't. I knew picking a movie that George Lucas directed, obviously, we're going to talk about Star Wars again. But every single one of our podcasts. We mentioned Star Wars. I guarantee you there's not one podcast that has happened with us that we don't mention Star Wars. We are really big of the (laughs) sci-fi movie that George Lucas wanted to make, but wasn't able to because of his death. And so he got his friend, Steven Spielberg, to make the movie, and it was never really that big of a hit. Or Steven Spielberg We're like rewriting history. What if somebody doesn't know the real history and they listen to us and then they're like, well, I heard on a podcast that he was dead. (laughs) Who is this guy? Okay. Because all of our fans are dweebs. They're like 11 years old. They are entirely 11 year olds. <laughs> they no like it's they one... were literally born in the years 2010 and beyond. That's who listens to us right now. It's one fifth. They have no idea about any of these. Plays movies. it for her class. That's our, <laughs> that's our entire audience. Because anybody who knows Star Wars now just knows that Disney created Star Wars. Like they don't know anything about Lucas. You think Disney came up with it? Walt Disney invented Star Wars. Is what they believe. Yeah, because they had to sell all of Lucas's assets after he died to cover the costs of his enormous drug habit. Um, sure, there and you Star go. Wars was made by Disney, and we all know what happened after that. We're gonna blow through this. I want to just tell you right off the top. I think it's a hidden gem. It's not a perfect movie, and I think it's a secret. It's a secret success if they would have promoted it better and let people know what they were in for. I think it would have done better and and released it at a different time because I think they were up against Apocalypse Now and yeah. uh, they said Monty Python's Life of Brian, two films Opening that weekend, dominated the box office. Yes. Yeah. especially when part of your movie is about Vietnam and you're going up against Apocalypse Now. That yeah. did not go over well. I'm sure. I wonder, considering the friendship between lucas and him i wonder if he was like hey uh francis can i uh can we film some of these scenes in your vietnam set and uh did Coppola, they couple was like yeah I sure have no idea how they shot it unfortunately there's not a lot of behind the scenes info about this movie i was i kind of wanted to know more about it but i just couldn't find too much there was only a little bit that i wanted to know and it was directly after it and it was just a th- something i wanted to know from bill norton which was how dare you how dare you 
Did you like this movie? I hated this fucking really? movie. Really? You hated this movie. How did I you hate it? I hated this movie. What was your first inclination of hate? Like what when did that first come upon you? The credits? No, <laughs> what the did you hate opening about? credits. No. No, um it this movie just really didn't work for me and it has a lot of good elements okay. that are there. The actors themselves do a really good job in my opinion. Like there's some there solid go. performances. But I think they're working with dog shit directed by dog shit. Like Wow. I think this movie could have been good if given to somebody else, but I hate the story. I hate it. I thought it worked so well, in my opinion. It does disservice to everything that was built in American Graffiti. (laughs) So you end this perfect movie letting the audience know what happened to these people, and you like these people. I don't want to watch them die. You spend the entire movie... All right, I'm going to... I'm going to take the griping back for a minute. But you know he's going to die. You know, going in, that both Toad and John have died. But Toad doesn't really die. Well, he was never twist. said that he died. He said it was missing twist. in action. Yeah. So that can go both one of one of two ways. We have another movie that follows the story of each of these people. We have a main uh, Steve story, or Steve and Lori story. We have a main John story. We have a main Toad story. And then we have a main, for some reason, Debbie story. Yeah, which I think is an an answer to people's sexist view of American Graffiti in that it only cared to follow up with the four male characters. So they made up for that in this movie. And frankly, Candy Clark won an Academy Award for American Graffiti. She was clearly going to be a bigger part of the sequel if they were ever going to make one. So that's why it made perfect sense to me. And she was good. Their separate stories don't amount to much, except for Lori's. I think Lori had a pretty a pretty compelling story. Yes. But together, the way they edited it together worked for me. It, it was a little weird to get into at first. I, I'll give you that. And it was a little more audacious and experimental than I think the film could handle. Super experimental for no reason. Right. But it didn't... But it was for a reason. But it didn't really work. It was a little too student filmy. Like, look at us and all of our things we're trying to do. And that's okay. Obviously, it's okay to like a movie. Even if you're wrong. Even if you're wrong. wrong. (laughs) So we have these individual stories. My biggest complaint with the stories, John's story, let's call him A. John's story takes place in 64. I'm going to forget exactly what letters are who. Let's just say the John story. (laughs) Because <laughs> they go in order every time, and it stays in that order. It goes John. Does it? I didn't really it pay goes attention. Toad. It goes Debbie, and then it goes Steve, and then it goes back to John. Maybe that is a detriment to it, and that if you can do that with a movie, then it's not flowing exactly. Like it's more um, clinical than it should be organic. It was so you very, might be right about that. My biggest problem is with the ages of the characters and what they're going through in relation to their age. At this point, John in this movie is 22. Steve, at that point in his movie, is... What is it? 20. He's five years later, so he's Yeah, we do see him a little bit in John's story, him and Lori, and she's pregnant. And so there's a little time travel, yes. are newly married, yeah, there's two years there. But then when we pick up, it's... Is it... New Year's 67, so it would be New Year's Day 68 the next year. Yeah, Yeah. so it's five years later. So it's basically 1968, yeah. So so he's 23, and Laurie is probably 22. She might be a year or two. Yeah, because she was staying another year. Like, she was definitely a junior. Yeah. Toad is, his story takes place in 65, so three years later, 
He's 20. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and so, like... <sighs> Why does that bother you? Because we're getting this continuation and the characters haven't really changed much there's no reason and the same with debbie debbie's probably her story is 66 so she's 21 i don't buy any they're just kids yeah they are but i feel like when you have a kid like steve and Lori have twins they were young but they immediately had to get older like that's just how it is so i saw their story is pretty accurate despite their ages being young i feel like they are who they were and that was accurate john even at 22 is aging out of being the cool guy who always wins now he has gone on from being a street racer to a drag racer so he has an actual career but it's like an indie thing all of the guys in vietnam even though they're young they're they're seeing the reality of the war so him being about 20 terry being about 20 in vietnam it's totally fine. And he's still got a lot of that confidence that he learned from Debbie in the first movie. Like, that's carried on to his confidence in the way he behaves in Vietnam. Even at a young age, what they went through, they're, um, they, they're getting considerable life experience. There's never really any tying it back together, is there? There's no tying it in that we see them together, but their friends are still playing a role in each of their lives in the way that they talk about John and how he's been dead for a number of years and they talk about terry and that he's missing and presumed dead so that's how the stories connect and that their sorrow over their friends fates are still impacting their lives even a couple years later see that's a little better that helps me a little bit. so story a <laughs> is john 1964 two years after the first movie he's moved on to small time professional racing with his own racing company they race crazy ass drag drag cars dragsters yeah. yeah and so we get Lori and steve and terry and debbie all together one last time to wish him well yeah and Lori's pregnant they steve says it's probably gonna be twins you know john said and see here's the thing about the movie for me uh i liked that it was all connected and that they were thinking of each other throughout the years right from the very first time you see john you know as a viewer that this is his last day on earth like, you don't know how it's going to end, but you know he's doomed at the end. And that, to me, has this underlying melancholy to the whole film that I couldn't get past. I kept feeling it, and it kept me engaged. See, I kept feeling it, and it kept me unengaged. Oh, because you felt like he wasn't important. You're already dead in my eyes. <laughs> Is that so where like, you were with it? John was kind of my favorite of the last or the first movie. Yes. So seeing him struggle and work hard to be the best. So long story short with his story he's got a bunch of races and he's john he's worried about losing he loses one of the races and then he wins the next three and he wins the whole thing he ends the day as a champion while mm -hmm. in the middle he meets a foreign woman that he can't communicate with tries to seduce her feels bad about that gets her back they work together to make sure his car will work and he wins end of the day it's a grand triumph for john which is like spitting in my face but i could see that but it, it's not it's not taken by itself it's not the most compelling short film but that is his life like that's what's important to him and we just know that that's his last day on earth and if that's all that was important to him was the way he spent it that day then i think that's a successful life so that to me is was fine but it doesn't make the most compelling story so at least it's backed up against Laurie's fun anti-war story and terry's admittedly 
a little bit inappropriate comedic hijinks in Vietnam. <laughs> they dial the comedy up to the in this movie to an eleven. That's the thing that that got to me the most was Terry's story. Uh, it was a little because it came out in seventy nine, right? So yep. you were only about four years removed from uh, everybody getting out of Vietnam. So it's still pretty fresh. And especially coming out the same weekend as American as uh, Apocalypse Now, I could see a comedic take on Vietnam as not being the smartest move, and it probably soured a little bit. See, what MASH did and why MASH was a hit is that it was an allegory, right, of or a metaphor for Vietnam, but it took place during the Korean War. So that's how they, like, kind of didn't exactly slap you in the face with it. This just went all in on the comedy about him trying to get the fuck out of Vietnam because even at the young age of 1920, whatever he is, he realized it's an unwinnable war because it's early on. Yes. Like you said, it was before the draft, but he was like, this is not this is not something I want to be in. But the reason I like Terry's story about him trying to get out of Vietnam is because he represented how everyone felt about Vietnam and his frustration in his own comedic way spoke to me as more of a of of he was America and America's frustration with this war. That's why it worked for me. Yeah, I mean I'm going to make you like this movie a little bit more than you do. I'm not going to say you're going to love it, but I'm going to I'm going to give you a few points of why I think it's a little bit of a a little bit of a hidden gem. Terry is 2 3 years we're at 3 years removed from the first movie and he is much less timid. We give that credit to Debbie and he's been in Vietnam for a year and he just wants out. And yes, we have the comedic hijinks of Terry trying to figure out how to get out of the military. First of which is him trying to shoot himself by mounting a gun to a tree and trying to pull a string, which we watch, and he's not able to pull that off. But in the meantime, he makes his camp think that he's being attacked. They're being attacked. So they go in this comedic row of escalation where we're like... Oh, well, they can't do anything where... Oh! Like, I'm surprised they didn't drop a nuke on his location yeah, by the end. I know. They, they napalmed him. Yes. So, <laughs> so they yeah, shoot at him. pretty ridiculous. They I'll shoot small artillery. They shoot large artillery. They call it an airstrike. And then they call it napalm. Like, just right. one after another. And it was just a laugh riot. And eventually, we get him coming out of there, surviving with just a scratch on his hand. And he gets latrine duty. He just happens to be in Vietnam with I don't I don't know what are the odds of being in a platoon with somebody from your same small hometown, but with the Might leader of the good. Pharaohs from the first movie, Joe. I mean, Forrest was in uh, the service with uh, Bubba, right? They were both from Alabama, at least. Yeah, same state is doable. <laughs> yeah, uh, Joe, the leader yeah, of the Pharaohs, little Joe, they call him, the leader and of the Pharaohs. They are part of a helicopter group that goes like in. drop off and rescue team. Yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. They save people. And they have a new commander that's volunteering them to go into the shit and pick up stuff. And they're pissed because they just try to stay out of the way. I loved how Terry was so confident and just like spoke his mind the whole time. It was it was nice. Yes. To see how he was just like, that's bullshit. Fuck you. You know, all the time. He is loud and he's funny and he's... He's a different person than the first movie, even though it's only been a couple of years. He remembers a moment where 
uh, off the top of the movie where John says to him when they go and visit him at his drag racing, you know, because he's all like a proud military man at that time. Like, I'm being shipped out tomorrow. We're going to do some good. You know, that's how America was before they realized what a shitty war this was. And John just says, well, just make sure you come back alive. All right. And he gives him a piece of his drag, you know, to like wear, basically, you know, yeah. kind of like uh, what he did for Carol, you know, giving her the drive stick thing so during the vietnam section terry has that on him like he wears it so that's where he thinks about john you know and he mentions how it's been a year since he died and and then little joe the pharaoh gets shot and killed yeah the helicopter crashes they get out of there okay but comedic hijinks ensue i don't want to spend too much time on it but he kind of gets back at his commanding officer for being a dick blows up a latrine and then fakes his own death yes that's terry's story this didn't make a lot of sense to me aren't you in vietnam you're in vietnam i don't care if you're not wearing your greens uh army greens but jesus christ you're an american in vietnam where the fuck are you gonna go but we never learn he just disappears and and they assume him dead terry's story ended about 45 minutes later when the Viet Cong got a hold of him is what happened (laughs) he's really a pow mia all these years um i want to circle back to john real quick because we do have Mackenzie Phillips reprising her role as, what was it, Carol? Yep. In this movie. And that, God, that feels like a missed opportunity where she could have been older and then they fall in love. But then mm. she's only 14 in this movie, so I understand why that didn't Maybe happen. A while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, she shows up at his racetrack, but she's also later in the movie with Debbie. Did you know that? No. She's I... Rainbow living in the commune with her. Still the same character. Really? So she ends up moving to San Francisco, much like Debbie did, and is living in the commune with her. I did not realize that. But again, she's not given much to do. That's really just to say like, oh, she was in the first movie. Here she is again. Yeah. Yeah. Now we move on to 1966. We see what happens to Debbie. Yeah. And, you know, and, and and we know by the end of the movie that Terry isn't really dead and that he faked his death. But as far as Steve and Lori uh, and Debbie's concerned, he's missing in action, presumed dead. I think she believed she was probably going to marry Terry and they were going <laughs> to see each other again. So once he's dead, she had to move on with her life. She ended up going to uh, uh, San Francisco and becoming a hippie chick. Yep. So this is where we get her story. And it's a pretty cut and dry story. Yeah, hers is probably the weakest. Yeah. But I could see why, again, she won the Academy Award for the first movie. They had to have her back and give her a bigger role. So they might just be kind of doing her a favor and they figured that audiences in 78 would love to see a nice little psychedelic romp uh with some acid trippy bands and stuff and some you know so that's just what she's given to work with she's candy clark right yep yeah she's great like and it's worth saying this again while i don't really like this movie the actors in this movie they're hitting their roles they're bringing more to the table than this douche director deserved and (laughs) i'll give you that (laughs) she debbie lives in san francisco and is dating this loser hippie and after some fun with the cops and the loser boyfriend getting arrested and her running around to find $25 to bail him out. There's also a scene because she works at a topless club. Strip joint. Her boss lends her the 25 bucks, but not really. She threatens to quit, gets her to not quit, yada yada. There's a snake. There's a snake. It's fine. <laughs> a lot of pointless bullshit going on. A lot of on, pointless but... bullshit. But Debbie bails him out and then he kind of just disappears and she goes to find a band that's going to hire a guitarist to see if they will let her loser boyfriend audition. 
and she gets into hijinks with the band. And this is my high point of the movie. Why would this band be my favorite part of this movie? Uh, are you a Scott Glenn fan? Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> Did not know who it was, but I saw him and I was like, this dude is pulling this shit off. Like, I'm into him. And I looked him up and it was like, it's that guy! Holy shit, it's Scott Glenn. Yeah, he's been a lot of stuff. esteemed actor of a lot of stuff. If you don't know who that is, look him up. And then look up Scott Glenn more american graffiti so you can be like holy shit was he hot when he was young yeah he was a good looking guy well i knew him from the right stuff you know the i've never seen movie. that yeah yeah it's a really good film but also recently he was in a uh, daredevil yes the show yeah he was stick and he was the, so he pops up here and there he was the boss in silence of the lambs he, he he's like sometimes he's scott glenn and sometimes he's a character actor that you think about years later oh yeah that was scott glenn <laughs> i thought he was john phillips uh, for a little bit, Mackenzie Phillips' father, because uh, he kind of looks like him too, and I was really worried about that <laughs> that it was him. So I was happy to look and go, "Oh no, it's Scott Glenn!" Oh, thank God. He actually looks like Peter Tork from the Monkees. I thought this also. group is a lot of fun, and she—it's weird for her, but she really gets into hanging out with them. And the biggest gag of the movie is that the van driver for them is always high, and if you tell him not to do something he will do it so there's this whole hilarious scene where they tell him not to drive through the park and not to drive into the trash cans and not to do something else and he's just causing havoc it's played like one of those fun movies like it's a mad 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 world Mm -hmm. you know just one of those uh capers or whatever like it's just a wild time here's the point of debbie's story it takes place in 66 let's have some fun psychedelic hijinks and let's let debbie know that she doesn't need a man to be successful and that she can find her place in life. And that's what happens. She was living off of Terry. She had to go out on her own. Then she's living off of Lance, her loser boyfriend. And she realizes that she doesn't need them. And then she becomes a country western star fronting her own band is what we learn at the end of the movie. So that's pretty much it. But again, like you said, they're so good at these roles that it's it's fun to watch. And maybe her story doesn't amount to much on its own. But when you cut that in with John's story and with Terry's story and with Steve and Laurie, then I'm like, this was a fun time. I don't think any of the stories build upon each other to make a no, they cohesive don't. Thing. But I just mean if you're going to take four short films and and mix them together, you can get an entertaining two hour movie out of it, and that's what that's what worked for me. That is essentially what it is. Like it is four unrelated stories happening in different years, but they just put some branding on it. It just doesn't work for me. So anyway, she hooks up with Scott Glenn. They form a country band, and it's a huge, great life for debbie the last story is Stephen laurie and more so laurie more so laurie and i think she pulls it off man i think this is a this is the most fun story last credited film appearance for ron howard theatrical yeah and they say that because he came back for one more role as opie in the tv movie return to mayberry in 1986 and that was his last official on-screen appearance is ron howard an asshole <laughs> In the movie or like, just in general? Just in general. Like his screen appearances. Does he have other films where he plays a character that you like? Because there's no point oh, yeah, in these for sure. movies where I really like Steve. Really? Well, yeah, but Opie, man. I mean, holy shit. He was awesome as Opie. I mean, you love that kid. And He's Andy Griffith's a child. Show. Yeah, but he grew into it. I mean, he was like a teenager by the time the show ended. And then Richie Cunningham. Come on, man. You got to about... see Happy Days. 
I don't know. I have mixed feelings about Ron Howard, especially with his later directing efforts. But he's made some great films, and frankly, I don't. I feel like he's shit upon for some reason, and I don't know why. He's like a he's Rob made great Reiner. films, and he's been in great shows, but not so in like, a why? long time. That's that's it. He's Rob well, Reiner. So what? Who the fuck cares? Not in a long time. That just means you should probably stop. No, that means you should. I mean, would you tell somebody like? I mean, he's been an actor since he was four. It's yeah. like he's been in the industry. Like you got look, look, buddy. Just stop doing what you do best. Just stop. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm gonna tell him. You've you lost don't say that it. To people. Stop. But I don't think so because he comes back with things like he might do solo, and you hated that. But he did the movie Rush with uh, that racing movie, and that was pretty. That was like a Tony Scott film. I was impressed with his work on that he did frost nixon which was pretty good so wait i just want to say but the guy made apollo 13 man did you I mean, just his best film talk about how his movie was good by comparing him to a different director <laughs> yes i did because i was impressed that he could shift styles like that and make a movie that was fast-paced and and stuff like a racing movie i was like holy shit i didn't know i i didn't know he was capable of that that's pretty cool but come on the guy made parenthood that's a good film he made the paper that's a great film he made night shift which is one of my favorite films splash is a fun film okay again nobody is but it's okay nobody's arguing that his early work even cinderella man that was pretty good nobody is arguing people say ed tv's early work right was bad Let's do it real quick. But you're saying early work, but he had 20 years worth of good movies. Like, that's a pass, is all I'm saying. So did Rob Reiner. Mm, Yeah, okay. That's why I give him a pass, too. But yeah, you're right. They haven't made the best movies lately. Grand Theft Auto. Never heard of it. First movie, whatever. It was his first movie. It's supposed to be pretty good, though. Night Shift. Splash. You have to... Awesome. Yeah. Cocoon. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's it made, always felt like an old person movie to me, so I've just never really been into it. But maybe it's really good. At the very least, it made the Wilfred Brimley line. And again, the whole point of the Wilfred Brimley line is that he wasn't old when he made that movie. <laughs> yeah, right. He was like, what? we were watching Obi-Wan another episode last night. And I'm just like, there's no way Ewan McGregor is going to look like Alec Guinness in like six more years. <laughs> And so many people. But they were like the same age, right? Practically, they're like around the same age when they're making Star Wars and making this new thing. Yes. Yes. It's so so funny. funny. (laughs) Gung Ho, which I've never heard of. Uh, Yeah, it's supposed to be pretty good, though, with Michael Keaton. And they're like uh, an American car company or some shit like that. Willow. Parenthood. Is that any good? I don't know. Willow's supposed to. Willow's like a classic. Yeah, it's a classic in that fantasy yeah. 80s thing. But is it good? Because I know people say they're good, they're but then you the actually TV watch show. it and you're just like... Eh. Uh, Parenthood, Backdraft, good. his 90s are... Uh, really good. Backdraft iconic. Awesome. You could argue that not a lot of people have had a better decade. Far and Away. Love that movie. Mm-hmm. The Paper. I don't actually know what that is. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. With Michael Keaton, again, they work at a newspaper. It's really good. Apollo 13. His best film, I think. Ransom. Give me back my uh, son. That's good, right? I love yeah. it. Yeah, it's Mel the Gibson. middle of Mel Gibson being the biggest yeah. star in the world. It was great. Ed TV was also good. I liked it. I never, I never saw it because it got the Truman Show came out and everybody shit on it like yep, it was it, a ripoff. But I, I hear it's supposed to be good. Is the nineties were when they did the each studio put out their version of the same thing? Right. Deep Impact, Armageddon. Right. Deep Impact, Volcano. Wait. Yeah, Deep Impact was that was it, a meteor. Deep Impact, Armageddon. Yeah. And then Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno, Dante's Inferno and Volcano. Dante's Peak. Dante's Peak <laughs> and 
volcano. We had Ed TV and Truman Show. Truman Show. Was there Outbreak and then something else that was similar as well? I don't know. We had Far and Away and we had Near and Far. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, come on. His 2000s are also pretty okay. A Beautiful Mind. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Fucking Oscar winner. Yeah. I don't that know what gets the shit on too in retrospect, but yeah. I still think it's a good film. It's a retro. I don't think people should be harsh on it. It's a good film. What's Cinderella Man again? Uh, Russell Crowe again. Oh, another... He was an old timey yeah. boxer with Renee Zellweger. Supposed to be really good. And then that's Cinderella Man is where we start getting mixed results. Yes, I think after that he hasn't really done anything worthy of da- what he did in the nineties. Da Vinci Code, Frost Nixon, which was supposed to be good. Angels and Demons, The Dilemma. A comedy with Vince Vaughn and Kevin James. Really? And then Rush, a biographical sports film centered on the Hunt-Lotto rivalry. Yeah, that sounds riveting. It's got the guy who plays Baron Zemo in the Marvel movies. He's one of the racers. And then um, Thor is the other one. Yeah. Hemsworth, I believe. Yeah. It was Uh, a good film. In the Heart of the Sea, historical adventure drama. Inferno, the movie that everybody was begging for yeah right well that's his franchise and it's making money so you know you just continue it is there's something to be said for finishing your job though if there's three da vinci code books and you make all three movies i think that's kind of cool but maybe a waste of your time by the time you're doing the third hillbilly elegy which did you see that i didn't it was i heard that got really shit on i think it did a netflix film amy adams and glenn close and then he's got 13 lives coming out yeah i don't know anyway is he a producer on the willow show he should be i'm sure he is he got his daughter into this lucas film and let me tell you something this is why people and you included don't like ron howard because he's redhead he's bald (laughs) he always wears a cap he was opie on the anniversary he was opie on the annie griffith show and people just will not get over the fact that he's a square uh, he's been in the business since he was four years old. He is a Hollywood guy. He's somebody that you could learn a lot from as both an actor and a filmmaker. And goddamn, has he made some great films. And that's why, in my eyes, he gets a pass. And I'm not going to shit on him. I am also not going to defecate on Ron Howard. That's against the law. But you want to. I see it in your eyes. So anyway, Steve and Lori are married. <laughs> <laughs> He just spit coffee out of his nose. This has been a huge tangent. That's what's so funny about this. I forgot we were even talking about the movie still. Okay, so Steve and Lori, they have twins. Steve is freaking out because he is really stressed out about work and his family life. And is Lori... He? he doesn't yeah. seem stressed about anything. He just wants oh, to he's stressed out about that. No, around. No. He's stressed out about that. And then Lori... Is saying like, you know what? I'm also very stressed as being the mother in this situation. And I would like a little free time to myself. I want to get a job. We'll put the kids in daycare. And this is where the the 1960s male thing comes about where it's very chauvinistic. And he's just like, no, no, no. A woman is made to be at home, be a mother, watch your kids. I'm the worker. And that's where this all comes from. And that he refuses to let her get a job. So she walks out on him and is like, fuck you. I'm going to go stay with my brother. 
who is uh, Richard Dreyfus, but he's just like, your brother's in Canada. You can't even get there. Blah, blah, something, whatever he said. And then she's like, I mean, my other brother. So now we are introduced to the fact that they have a younger brother. Which is clearly the role that they hoped that Richard Dreyfus would take up until the last minute. Because I could see him, right? I mean, he oh, yeah. that could have worked for him as well. Even though he became a writer in Canada, that could have been later. He could have been a draft dodging uh, anti-war. That would make sense. She goes to stay with her younger brother who's kind of got this shitty apartment or dorm or whatever it is with a roommate. And it's very quickly learned that they are like hardcore anti-war protesters. But she's very conservative, you know, and, and with, with Ron, with Steve. Um, so she doesn't really understand what they're doing, but she follows him anyways because he forgot his wallet. So she has to bring his wallet to her brother but he it's because he wanted to burn his draft card as a show of solidarity with the protesters. The cops are like convening outside of the school where they're doing this. And then it becomes an anti-war police. Riot? Yeah, police yeah, action. Riot over, yeah. yeah, police totally overreacting, bashing heads and shit. So it gets pretty real yeah. like, in the midst of all this comedy. I was like, holy shit. But I thought it was done so well. You know, it, it was good. And this this was probably one of the better sections in terms of clearly showing that and having the audience be invested and as far as character growth as you said like she starts as this woman who's thinking about herself just wants a little freedom in life and then gets to experience life uh from other people and learning about their play and then comes around to the fact that holy shit these people are right. I want to be on their side. And then she effectively becomes this anti-war protester. Yeah, there's a great scene in the bus after all the women had been arrested. Some of the women are singing and the cops come and they smack her in the face, the girl that won't stop singing. So Laurie just has a moment and she starts singing too because it's important. And she gets everybody on the bus to sing and it was a great moment. It was a yeah. tiny little piece of success in a big pile of not success. Strength in numbers. And uh, Steve is kind of on her trail. He realizes he's been an asshole, although it takes him a, still a long time to come around to her needs because um, they still have a little fight. He gets fucked by the cops, too, but because of all that singing on the bus and then they get in a big brawl outside, they end up stealing the bus and everybody gets away scot-free. Yep. And then this is what Magnolia ripped off in that all the characters separately start singing all playing sang, right? Is that how you say it? The uh, okay. new song. No, no. Because but they all sing it together. The whole point is they're all separately. linked up at midnight. And yeah, so exactly. that's what you do after the ball drops is you sing this song. What Magnolia know, did Magnolia was bonkers shit. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I've, I'd never seen a movie like Magnolia where they all sang the same song anyway uh so yeah and then you get a little uh you know a little happy ending for most people and john leaves after having triumphed at the drag thing and he drives down the road and uh you presumably believe that's the moment he was killed by the drunk driver right yeah because none of the lights continue moving <laughs> yeah i wasn't sure though if like they just froze the frame right, right. i don't know but if from they what did i read not. i guess they didn't so that was timed out nicely and so they showed the scenes again with what happened to everybody over his dead body they show john died on this day toad went mia and then they say steve and laurie yeah business people yes. and then they say debbie becomes a singer fronting a country western band the thing about laurie though is that she is trying to convince her brother that he shouldn't be a protester because we should support the government you know america no matter what that's what a lot of people felt but the kids knew better and and she says well what about terry like he died for nothing if we don't continue to this fight. And the, her brother says, Terry already died for nothing. 
Like, we want to stop anybody else from dying from nothing. And I thought that was a great little line. I was like, wow. And if the director wrote that, I was like, well, that's good. Yeah, I'm sure that was ad-libbed. <laughs> I was uh, happy with that. Maybe. Maybe it was ad-libbed. Worth yeah. noting that Laurie's brother had a girlfriend by the end of the movie, played by Laurie's real-life sister, Carol Ann Williams. Did she go on to do stuff? You can't click Carol Ann Williams' name on Wikipedia, so maybe not. <laughs> I'm saying that, yeah. I yeah. guess she didn't have a career after that. But she was good. So yeah, that was just, a, it was like, here's a continuation of all these characters, whether you want it or not. Uh, but it was laced with sorrow in my mind, knowing that John, that was his last day. And everybody had a connection because of who they lost in the past and how it sort of still affected their lives even a couple years later. And that's what I liked about the movie. And here's what we didn't talk about, the stylistic choices oh, God, that they yes. did with each scene. But I see why they did it, because they didn't want to confuse the audience. And frankly, it maybe worked. Because anytime you saw Debbie's scenes, it was all split screen. Yeah. Uh, um, which very bizarre. Again, was a callback you know. to the first American Graffiti, where George Lucas was whispering into Bill Norton's ear when he was on set. Hey, Bill. So when we were filming the original movie, to save time and expenses, I used two cameras at the same time. In that way... We were able to just save money and time, Bill. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's very economical. So then they cut it that way in the sequel, though. So you see things. But it's fun. I thought it was a lot of fun after a while. It was a lot of fun, but just silly and experimental. Right. And, and then anything with Terry in Vietnam was shot on 16 millimeter, So it was smaller than your normal. So it was a little grainier. And then they would have the aspect ratio more of a square but i think that also helped them because the stock footage that they used of like napalm and stuff actually blended much better yeah but it, it probably helped like when you saw these different eras it was easy to keep you in the timelines because of the separate looks now Stephen laurie and john's were the same 35 millimeter well i mean so the big difference maybe it there really is help. i don't know they figured out pretty quickly that having john in his scenes um and not having steve in his they were able to tell which scenes weren't douchey and I so see. when they realized there wasn't any <laughs> douche they knew it was john's section and right, when they felt right, the right, douche right. they knew it was uh steve's <laughs> section yeah steve's a little douchey but steve is kind of the everyman a lot of people were like him i know it's not fair but with this movie i did feel a lot of parallels between american graffiti and the last picture show and it was hard not to feel parallels between more American Graffiti and the much better sequel, Texasville, which does the same thing where it looks sure. at its characters years later, but does it right. <sighs> because this movie just doesn't have time. If they had made this sequel 15 years after yeah, the fact, I think it would have been better. That's all. That's my biggest gripe. And that's my closing thought. What are your closing thoughts? Uh, I'm glad we continue our service of uh, finding films that nobody even knows exists and bringing them out again because there might be some people that actually enjoy them. And I, for one, am glad I saw it and it made me uh, it made me a fan of the film. I, I really liked it. Although I see it's flawed. It is definitely a mixed bag. And it failed at the box office, too. <sighs> it technically didn't fail, but it didn't make that much money. Well, it didn't make anything like the no. first movie so Did it uh, make... it's always deemed as a failure yeah <laughs> it made 15 million on a three million budget ish um it's just a shame that george lucas wasn't alive to see it <laughs> to the bitter end until 
You and your bits. Bitter. To the bitter end. end. So that's uh, more American Graffiti from 1979. Check it out if you get a chance. I recommend it. It is available to stream, obviously. Unlike Texasville. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys all like us on the social media. Review the podcast on podcast apps that let you review it. Share the podcast with your grandmother. Grandmothers love us. Try to donate to my Patreon and blah, 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 blah. And yeah. Smack the like button and subscribe. And God, this fucking YouTubers, man. Someday Sorry. we will have a Patreon and we will laugh. Laugh at this. Laugh. But isn't it so funny? People pay monthly for other people to create content for them to watch on YouTube. I just find it weird that somebody doesn't make something and then they put it out there and then you pay for it. But you're like supporting someone on a monthly basis like they're your employee and you're just paying them money while they make. What? It's so weird. It's like buying a (laughs) ticket to a movie is what it is. And you get a new movie. Yeah, but the movie hasn't been made yet. Yeah. I'm promised a new movie every month. It's it's bizarre, man. It is. I'm going to call it. Bye. Bye.